For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that ye may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. This is the word of the Lord. This morning, uh, the sermon is entitled, My Prayer for My Kids. And uh, I have two children, and it is a prayer for my two children, but it is also a prayer that I would hope that you as dads, especially on Father's Day, would pray for your children too. Uh, in order to introduce it and to introduce really the, the need to pray as we are going to talk about today, uh, I must go to my favorite Christmas movie, Home Alone. That's my favorite Christmas movie is Home Alone. And uh, so let's uh, just kind of jump into it. Uh, check out a little scene here from Home Alone. So old man Marley is most misunderstood on the street where Kevin and his friends live. And he, the reason he is, is his older, Kevin's older brother's story has framed quite a view of uh, old man Marley and really distorted in Kevin and his friends their understanding of who this old man is. As a matter of fact, it will take a rather uh, traumatic event to change Kevin's view of who old man Marley is. Some of you, perhaps many of you, have the same problem when it comes to God. You don't know him. Your knowledge of him is framed by stories uh, you heard as a kid, the way your parents used his name uh, when they were angry, or perhaps your relationship with your father was strained and difficult, and you find it hard to think of God as father and uh, put your earthly father in the same sentence. You're not alone throughout history. God's own people have struggled to know him. Jeremiah 4.22, God is talking here and he says, For my people are foolish, they know me not. They are stupid children. They have no understanding they are wise in doing evil, but how to do good they know not. <clears throat> Isaiah 1.3, the ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Hosea 4.6, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge, I reject you from being a priest to me. And since you have forgotten the law of your God, I also will forget your children 
The Old Testament is uh, full of accounts of God calling out his own children because they do not know him. But in the New Testament, Paul does the same. Notice Paul's prayer. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. These are not fly-by-night Christians. These are ardent followers of Christ. But notice what Paul prays for them, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Paul says, though you are in Christ and Christ is in you, you still have a need to know God. This points probably more than anything to the unsearchable characteristics of a great God who can say the word and the universe comes into existence. He is unknowable unless God gives us a spirit of wisdom and of revelation to know him. There are two words used for knowledge in this section. They are the two words used for knowledge in the New Testament. And they're quite different. Uh, The first is the word knowledge here. It is uh, a word which means having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. I'm sorry, it is a word that means to observe over time as you are obedient to God. It's the word that we might uh, make reference to experiential knowledge of God. Henry Blackaby has written a book in a study by the title called Experiencing God. Uh, The second word is the word to see. It means to know facts, uh, to get your facts right. And that's where Paul says, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know. That word there is to know facts. We might summarize this by saying, you cannot know a God you do not trust, nor can you trust a God you do not know. You cannot know a God you do not experientially trust, nor can you experientially trust a God you do not factually know. That combines the two words into the same sentence to say to know God is to experience him. To experience God is to know him. So if I were praying For my son who is in the service, my daughter was in the last service. And if I'm praying for you, I have a three-part prayer that I would pray for my own children. And I hope dads and moms that you'll pray for yours. Number one, know who you are. I pray that my children will know who they are. Uh, The phrase is, what is the hope to which he has called you? Let me define a couple of terms. First of all, the word hope doesn't mean what it means typically uh, when we say it today. Uh, We might say, I hope to get a good meal after service today. And your meal may be good or it may not be so good. That's wishful thinking, isn't it? That's how we most often use the word hope. But if you use the word hope in connection with a God who's never broken a promise, all of a sudden the word hope uh, begins to pack a whole lot more punch. And it is confident expectation. 
The hope of what? The calling. What is the calling? The word is used to describe an invitation to a feast, a wedding invitation. When you get a wedding invitation, you don't say, I hope they'll let me in. The invitation is the way you get into the wedding. So what is the calling? Well, uh, often we think of the word calling as being called to ministry, and certainly that does exist, but that's not what the word means in Ephesians. We go to verse 4. It means your call to salvation. Look at verse 4. It's a bit of a jarring verse of chapter 1. Even as he, God, chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. Some of you in your fear of hyper-Calvinism run from this verse. Don't do that. This verse clearly states God chose you before the foundation of the world. He chose you. I cannot explain that. Why? Because I know myself. I know myself on my worst days. And on my worst days, I wouldn't pick me. That's easy. But even on my best days, I I don't think I'd pick me either. But according to verse 4 of chapter 1, God chose me before the foundation of the world. What does that mean? It means that before I had a chance to prove myself, God said, I love you. I want you. Well, why? There is no reason but love. Let me give the uh, complete surrounding of that statement in verse 4 by reading verses 3 through 6 of chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. There it is. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. It's love. You are loved by God, chosen to be adopted into the family of God out of love, not out of anything you could do. As the old song says, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. You come with nothing that would merit a God of the universe to say, hey, I think they make a great team member. No. Well, um, in theology we call uh, this adoption and then justification. And many of you have heard that term described, justification, just as if I had never what? Sinned. Just as if I'd never sinned. That's how God sees me. I'm reading a little book by Jerry Bridges right now. And and in Bridges' little book, he says um, the way he uh, likes to understand this is just as if I had always obeyed. Wow. Wow. Just as if I'd always obeyed. So when God saved you and when the blood of Christ was applied to your life, from that moment on, God sees you just as if you had always gotten it right. 
He sees you in Christ, in Christ in you. He does not see your failures when he looks at you. Uh, He doesn't see a composite picture of all the wrong you have done. You and I are good at that, aren't we? Uh, We are good at the broken record of sin that tends to roll through our minds and tends to crowd out anything of, of God and good. But when God looks at us, justification says he looks at you just as if you had always obeyed. I'm guessing most of us forgot that this week. That's what I'm trying to say. Know who you are. Timothy Henry Gray's body was discovered by children sledding underneath a Union Pacific Railroad overpass in Evanston, Illinois, December 27, 2012. It was 10 degrees outside. Gray had died. What Gray, who, of course, by the description was homeless, did not know was that he was set to inherit $19 million. He had no idea that a long-lost relative in New York, an eccentric woman, Hugiette Clark, her name, had died. A year and a half earlier, they were settling her estate. She was worth $300 million. And, uh, and Timothy Gray was the half-great-nephew of Clark, and as such, was set to receive six and a quarter percent of her fortune, which would have been $19 million. He died not knowing who he was. I'm afraid that those of you who know Christ live under the frozen overpasses of past failures, not knowing who you are. My prayer for my children and my prayer for yours is that they will know who they are. Secondly, well, let me apply this. As you leave today, you'll be able to pick up one of these gospel prayer bookmarks. It's from J.D. Greer's book, The Gospel. And he has a four-part prayer, and it weaves wonderfully with today's message. You say, well, Jerry, how could I appropriate this understanding daily into my life? Listen to this. In Christ, there is nothing I could do to make you love me more, nothing I've done that makes you love me less. You and I need to pray this every day. Some people call it preaching the gospel to ourselves. Secondly, I would pray that my children and yours would know whose you are. Verse 18, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? Uh, I must admit to you that I have read this wrong up until this week. I have read this verse and thought, oh, we have an inheritance, but that's not what Paul says. The the possessive pronoun his is referring to God, his glorious inheritance. Well, how does an inheritance work? When someone dies, someone else gets something. That's an inheritance. So here, 
there is a reference to God's inheritance, so it begs a few questions. Number one, who died? And number two, what is the inheritance? All right, so who died? Jesus Christ died. When Jesus died then, there was an inheritance that God the Father received at the death of his son. What is God's inheritance? It's you. That's right. You are God's glorious inheritance. When Jesus died on the cross, he he died and he resurrected. And when he resurrected, the writer of Colossians says, he became the firstborn among many brothers and sisters, meaning Jesus was the first of many sons and daughters of God. He gave you to the Father. Uh, What then does this mean for us? Your value is determined by whose you are. All right, hear me because this is both counterintuitive and countercultural. Your value is determined by whose you are. You are God's inheritance. And if God so values you so that you would be his inheritance, when he made uh, the universe in which we live, when he flung the stars into space, when he created all that we see, yet he was thrilled to have you as his inheritance, then you must be pretty valuable. Why? Why? You go all the way back to the beginning and God created you. He formed you. He designed you. The psalmist in Psalm 139 speaks eloquently of this. He says, I give thanks to you, God, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when yet... My parents did not even know me. God designed you. He made you. Your personality, uh, your quirks, the, the things that make you you are God's doing. God makes no junk. You are his valued creation, but something happened. Adam and Eve sinned, marred the creation, and when they did... Well, the good thing God made became marred and scarred by sin. So what did God do? He sent his perfect son, unmarred by sin, unscarred by sin, to die on the cross for you. He gave his best. So you're his twice. He made you and he bought you. You're his inheritance. That is your value. Well, what do we tend to to determine our value by? In America, possessions, right? Wealth, possessions. We are valuable by what we have. If you're a hoarder, it's what's in the bank. If you're a spender, it's what's in the driveway. Right? Power and influence. 
It is how many people you can boss or boss around. It could be a tiny little circle, but you sure enough tell your tiny little circle everything to do. Or maybe it's a larger circle and you, you vie for power. Power gone bad, we call abuse. Power gone public, we call politics. Right? Physical appearance. Physical appearance. With Snapchat now replacing texting. So every time you text almost, you send a picture of yourself. So with Snapchat now usurping texting, then you better look good or figure out 483 ways to make your lips change. I mean, it's weird. But people do it all the time, right? So I am valued based on my appearance. Am I strong enough, skinny enough, good looking enough, whatever it may be? We could add other things, educational attainment, The list could go on and on. How about relationships? My value is wrapped up in who's on my arm or whose arm I'm on. If I feel loved by him, I feel loved by God. If I don't feel loved by him or her, I don't feel loved by God. And yet here, if my kids could get one thing, it would be to know who they are, but secondly, whose they are. Their value is wrapped up in a God who created them and bought them. That's what I want them to know. Check this painting out. I mean, I'm not an art aficionado, but there's nothing in me that says buy that and hang it in my house. It's called The Boy with the Pipe. It was sold or auctioned at Sotheby's in May of 2004 for $104 million. Why? Two words, Pablo Picasso, right? Picasso painted that, therefore it's worth $104 million. All right, check out the next one. That's weird. Like, I can't figure out the face. Is she looking that way? Is that an ear or a nose? Uh, The ear on the left is attached to the eyeball. Why? Well, this is Dora Marr with Cat, sold in May of 2006 for $95.2 million. Why? Two words. Pablo Picasso. That's why. The value of the painting is not in the painting. It's in the painter. So it is with you. Your value is not in you. It's in the God who made you and redeemed you. Amen? You are so valuable. Well, so what happened then is when you were marred, Jesus died on the cross 
John 10, 17, 18, he says, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life down. I may take it up again. No one takes it from me. I lay it down of my own accord. Jesus was glad to die for you. So how might you pray? The number two on the the prayer card goes like this. You are all I need today for everlasting joy. You are all I need today for everlasting joy. Third, if I had a third prayer request for my kids, it would be that they would know what God can do. Look at verse 19, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power? Uh, there's some great words here. This word immeasurable, is a con- it, it, it's two words put together. Uh, the, I think you'll recognize them even in English, hooper, balo, hyper. It's where we get our word hyper, balo, ball, to throw. It means to throw a ball so far that you can't measure the distance. Uh, immeasurable greatness. Uh, the only time the word, this word is used in the Greek uh, in the New Testament is here. It's almost as if Paul coined the word megathos. All right? Uh, greatness, mega. The immeasurable greatness uh, toward us who believe God's power is directed toward you and me according to the working of his great might. This word working is used only in the Bible to refer to superhuman power. It's all power talk. Rankin Wilborn describes it or illustrates it this way. He says it's the difference uh, between uh, the superheroes, Batman and Spider-Man. You see, Batman gets all of his power because he's got a lot of money and a lot of gadgets, right? And so with all his wealth and all his gadgets, he can do anything pretty much he wants to do. But Spider-Man gets his power because one day he was bitten by a radioactive spider that infused him with the power he has. And the world really functions a lot like Batman and believers function a lot like Spider-Man because when you came to God by faith in Christ, the Holy Spirit came to live within you and the Spirit in you begins to work out of you Christ-like qualities and characteristics so that you can do things you never thought you would be able to do. And say things you never thought you would say. And go places and serve God in ways that you never thought you would do. That's the power of God. And so for my kids, know who you are, know whose you are, and know what God alone can do. He alone is able to do some things that no one else can do. All right, so I'm getting nerdy with you. Uh, Two big words alert. All right, so uh, two big words coming on, and here they are out of Jerry Bridges' work. Monergistic and synergistic. All right, monergistic and synergistic. You can leave here today and say, I I mean, I, I challenge you to use these over lunch. Not connected to the sermon, right? Just, just throw them in a sentence. Monergistic and synergistic. So uh, uh, Bridges says God works in both ways. What does he mean by monergistic? Here it is on the screen. When God works in a monergistic way, he works in us and for us, but completely independent of us. We'll leave that on the screen for a moment. Let me illustrate. 
I had graduated college, and I know for all of you who know that I am anything but a Carolina fan. This will be hard for you to believe, but I applied to North Carolina to grad school, got accepted, and uh, uh, was headed to uh, Chapel Hill, not only to be a student there, but to to teach Spanish uh, as a teaching assistant. So I'm headed to Chapel Hill, and uh, that is my plan. If I were to say one to ten, my walk with God at that time, one being terrible, ten being great, I would give myself probably a four or a five. And that could be a bit generous. I was working that summer as I was preparing to go, and it was three nights before I was to go. I had traveled to Chapel Hill, had my apartment. I had a roommate that I knew from Wofford. He was going to dental school. I was going to grad school to get my master's in Spanish, and that was our plan. Three nights before I am to go, I can't sleep at all. I cannot sleep. And so the, the message the entire night was, don't go to Chapel Hill. I get up the next morning, I go to work, I lay back down that night. It's nagging on me all day, and I hear it again. That's not my will for you. Get up the next morning, third day, I couldn't take it anymore. I could not shake it. I wasn't praying for God's will on this, honestly. I've made my decision. But I couldn't shake it. So I got on the phone to my roommate and I said, I'm sorry. I won't be coming. I'll pay my rent till you find someone. I can't come. I called Chapel Hill and said, I cannot come. I cannot teach for you. I'm sorry. That weekend... I was playing the piano for a wedding. I get to that wedding, and uh, the person singing said to me, well, what are you doing? I said, I don't have a clue. I've graduated college. I have my plan. That was two years of it. That's gone. I don't have a clue. She said, what's your degree? And I said, it's in Spanish. Uh, She said, well, uh, I work for Buncombe County Board of Education, and they're desperately looking for Spanish teachers because this was when you had to take Spanish in first, third, and fifth grade in North Carolina. It was a brand-new program. She said, come see us Monday. So on Monday, I go to the Buncombe County Board of Education. I walk in. I fill out the application for a Spanish teaching job. They interview me. They said, would you please wait? They went back. I guess you can run a background check pretty quickly because they must have done it. They came back out and they said, you're hired. When can you start? And so I taught school for a year before I went to South Carolina, the real Carolina. And... um, had to get that in there, um, to, to grad school. What is my point? My point is this. That's totally monergistic. I was not seeking God. He was seeking me. Why? Because when I went to Columbia, I got plugged into a church. And when I got plugged into that church, I heard a sermon on how to read the Bible. I'd never heard on how to read the Bible in my life. I went back to my apartment, opened up my Bible, began to read. The words began to dance off the page at me. I couldn't get enough. 
It would be about six months into my experience in grad school at South Carolina that the Lord, by his grace, would call me to preach. Monergistic. Then there's synergistic. Synergistic is when, uh, James, if you'll put that up on the screen, synergistic combines our effort with God's enabling power. All right, so monergistic, God does what he does. You might say in spite of us or around us or through us, but synergistic is that God invites us to join him, and it's his working with us through us. I shared this a couple weeks ago, uh, maybe last week, I don't know. But if you weren't here, it's for you. And if you were, it's worth sharing again. It was two weeks ago when, I think on a Wednesday or Thursday, I received a call from Amy Miller, a text. And she said, please pray. Taylor, their 22-year-old daughter, is very ill. She had gone to a thyroid appointment when they uh, looked at some things and saw some counts and did some scans and said something isn't right. They sent her straight to Mission Hospital. When they sent her to Mission Hospital, they uh, sent her to the cancer floor. And they said, we think that you have lymphoma. The lead cancer doctor came and sat with him and met with him. In my 16 years of pastoring here, uh, multiple people have been diagnosed with cancer. And so Todd began to text me, and from where I was, I began to pray. Well, it was about uh, 8.30, I think, 8.45. I drove to Marion to pick up Trent from his life group. We get in my Jeep, and when Trent and I get in my Jeep, one thing happens every single time. He gets his phone out. He plugs it in through my USB, and he cranks it up so loud, and it is Lecrae or KB or somebody. And so it's, I do it for the turn up, got my ammo locked and loaded. I know all these songs. I have heard every one of them so many times. It is loud. The windows are rattling. And we're going down Highway 70, and it's just boom, 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 right? And if God can speak around that, you know it's God, <laughs> right? You just know if, if God can somehow communicate around uh, the, 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 the loudness of the Jeep. And so we're driving up the road, and Trent's just jamming, you know, this is loud, and his head is, you know, bouncing, and all this kind of thing, and uh, that's what we do, and it's as if it's completely quiet, and God, not audibly, but says to my spirit, get to the hospital. You need to get to the hospital and pray for her. And I, I thought, okay. And as we're getting home, Wendy calls And she and Hannah have been somewhere else. And Wendy says, I cannot explain this to you, but God says we need to get to the hospital now. Wow. That's synergistic. God is saying, I want to do something, and I want to use you. And so Hannah, Wendy, and I head across the mountain to Mission 
hospital, cancer floor, 10th floor. It's now 945 when we walk in and there's this family and immediately Amy just, just falls on Wendy crying. A biopsy is scheduled for the next day. The doctors are quite certain that it is lymphoma. And so we talked and hung out for a little bit and then I grabbed a little bottle of oil like the scripture says to do in James 5 that I use when I pray for folks. And I said to Todd and to Amy, um, the Lord sent us here. We know that. And he sent us here to pray. Is that all right with you? Of course, they said. And we surrounded Taylor's bed and I put some oil on my finger and I put it on her forehead and we began to pray for that girl to be healed. Does God always do that? No. He doesn't always heal. He doesn't always tell me to do that either. So we prayed and we laughed and the next day they did the biopsy. The results came back much sooner than they anticipated. They thought she might stay for two or three more days while they continued test. And they said her nurse came in on that floor, on that cancer floor, and the doctor came in, and together they sat down, and the tears began to roll down this nurse's face. And she said, I never get to do this, but there is no cancer. You have no cancer. That's synergistic. That's the Lord. For some reason, prompting me, in spite of the racket in my Jeep, right? Prompting my wife. God works both ways. You say, how might I pray about that? Back to the card number four. As I pray, I'll measure your compassion by the cross and your power by the resurrection. The cross says God cares. The resurrection says God can. So my prayer for you, my prayer for my kids is know who you are. Know whose you are and know what God can do. Know who you are. Know whose you are and know what God can do. And that will result in a life that shows God. That's the third prayer on here. As you have been to me, so I will be to others. All right. We started out with Home Alone. We have to end there. Old man Marley is the unsung hero of this movie, is he not? All right, James, we're going to play the, 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 that clip all the way out this time. Uh, just check out what old man Marley gets to do. So, so what happens? Oh, man, Marley saves the day, right? Oh, man, Marley. The only reason uh, Kevin can look and wave at his uh, would-be attackers is because of oh, man, Marley. The guy they thought was a murderer. Would you bow your heads? Lord, we said at the beginning that, that we, we struggle to know you. 
There are some people in this room who do not yet know you personally as their Savior, and so, of course, they struggle to know you. They know you uh, perhaps as they see us worship you, but they don't know you personally. Lord, we cannot know a God we do not trust, and we cannot trust a God we do not know. And something tells me that old man Marley's reputation changed drastically on that street. I pray for those of us whose knowledge of you has been blinded by the broken records of sin and failure and disappointments and disillusionment. That you will remind us of who we are, of whose we are, and of what you can do as you work in spite of us and as you work through us. I pray that for my son and daughter. I pray that dads would learn to teach their kids the same. I pray this, Jesus, in your strong name. And all God's people say, Amen.